Well, good afternoon and welcome along to The Pastor's Heart. It's Dominic Steele here and next week on The Pastor's Heart we get back to our regular format of a live discussion and you asking the questions. But this week we're still dealing with the issues flowing out of the important Anglican GAFCON conference in Jerusalem. And so on The Pastor's Heart today we're talking about the minister who loses it all when the denomination moves into apostasy, leaving you and your congregation as faithful followers of Christ Jesus, but with the denomination, rather than supporting and encouraging the faithful orthodox ministry of Christ, acting against you. And so we're going to talk to four men and one woman who have been in that situation or are currently in that situation. From Canada, David Short. From Scotland, David McCarthy. From New Zealand, Dave Clancy. And Chuck Thebo and his daughter Rachel from the United States. So we're going to start with Canada's David Short, who was the Minister of St John's in Vancouver at the time of GAFCON in 2008. And at that time, David Short was in a diocese that was turning its back on Christ by denying Christ's lordship, walking away from the scriptures and adopting a pro-same-sex marriage stance. And because of David Short's faithful stand on the scriptures and also historic Anglicanism, there was then no place for him within the traditional structure of the Canadian Anglican Church. I asked David about his journey and his heart, and we started our thinking back at GAFCON 10 years ago, GAFCON 2008. I think for some of us, uh, GAFCON 2008 was absolutely crucial. We were in the midst of difficulties then, and GAFCON came at a time where we felt very alone and unsure of where to go. Mm And the GAFCON primates uh, were a great help to us. And now there are other countries facing some of the same issues. And there is a great sense, I think, through praying together and meeting with people and through the different seminars uh, of a movement of God looking forward. I think initially GAFCON started as a response to the defiance of the gospel. But there is a sense of leaning forward. How can we reach more widely with the gospel for the future? So it's not a one-issue conference. It's very much how do we return to the gospel and grow from that. Mm. Now, a lot of people watching won't know the difficult journey that you've been through. And um, I'm going to ask you some questions about, if you like, the politics. But I also want you to take us to your heart with the Lord Jesus and how he's dealt with you um, through this and how and how you've grown as a person and and I've been through some trials and God did some but nothing like the complexity that that you've had you've had over in Vancouver so um, take us give us the story yeah well uh, we uh, were in a diocese which was um, pretty determined I think to go a direction which was away from the gospel Our synods uh, rarely used the language of the Bible and we were called on to support all sorts of causes that were strange. Um, The Bible itself was spoken about not as the Word of God but as a record of the Word of God or as uh, it was seen as a source for our faith, one of many resources for our faith. And... uh, I think those who were in charge of the diocese at the time felt that the sexuality issue was an unimpeachable issue to move forward on. For us, it was an iceberg issue because it had to do with a different view of salvation and a different view of the scriptures and a different view of God and a different view of the Christian life. 
So in 2002, the diocese went ahead and voted uh, for the third time by a small majority to sanction the blessing of same-sex unions. The bishop said he would go ahead, despite Lambeth Conference in 1998. Mm. And a group of congregations protested. We uh, walked out of Synod, and we called on the House of Bishops for alternative Episcopal oversight. And that plunged us into nine years of processes both inside the diocese uh, inside the country of Canada and internationally with the Archbishop of Canterbury's panel of reference. Um, at every point, uh, there was a lack of will on those on the other side to find a way forward. So uh, within, a, within two months of us walking from the building, charges were brought against us by, by our bishop. Uh, charges were brought against the trustees. It was quite a hostile time, and we were not sure what to do. We wanted to continue meeting as faithful Anglicans, but we were stuck. And so for all that time, we were stuck. Um, several bishops tried to come to our aid from within Canada, but they were blocked by the bishop of our diocese and the archbishop of the province. And although we tried to find a Canadian solution and hold together, unfortunately that was not forthcoming. So uh, we were very grateful in 2008 when the Southern Cone under the Archbishop Greg Venables provided us with uh, the offer of alternative oversight and we began a network, a Canadian network. We were soon followed by the American churches uh, as they elected um, a, a bishop, Gene Robinson, who was a practicing homosexual. And so our networks began to grow and expand. And during those years, uh, I traveled and went to many, 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 many meetings uh, seeking to find a way forward through this. And in the end, we were, not, we were not able to find a way forward within the structures as they exist because the people who were in the structures uh, had determined this was the way forward. And since leaving, those changes have only accelerated. So um, we had a court case. We lost our property. We lost our home. Uh, every church except two in Canada who has come, come with us has lost their properties. Um, and most of the churches in the United States, uh, the same thing has happened. Um, so so yeah. y y your church was the most high profile of the ones in Canada, the largest one, and, and certainly the one I knew of best. But a number of others went with you as well. Yes, we had four churches in the diocese uh, that were with us all the way. The bishop try, uh, managed to close two other churches that had come with us. Um, but these, these churches stuck with us. It happened a little later in the other dioceses. Um, well, just staying in your diocese for a moment, though. So you've got five churches who've left. Um, what's been the trajectory of growth, the blessing of God, um, uh, flourishing for those five compared to the, the old diocese that you were thrown out of? Yeah. I'm not as much in contact with the old diocese, although I have uh, met with the new bishop. Um, but I think it would be true to say that their numbers are declining. I know they are closing churches, whereas we are opening churches and seeking to purchase churches. And we've now grown to 74 churches across the country, uh, for which we're very grateful. I want to say, Dominic, that in the middle of the crisis, at the worst time, when we were under the most pressure, um, what, was, what was so important to us was the fellowship 
of the international communion. Mm. So in 2002... The, when the Bible guys in the international communion. Yes. Um, so uh, in the fall, in September in 2002, the Global South Primates sent a delegation to the diocese to, to, to find out what had happened. A bishop, Archbishop Bernard Malenga, who was Archbishop of uh, six countries, a number of others from the United States and from England and from the Global South came. They met with the diocese and they met with us. And that formed the basis of deep fellowship for mm. us. And the message to us is we were not alone. We are with you. We, this, what's happening here is not right. This is not the way of God. And uh, that became, that has flourished into all sorts of things. So at this conference, the, Arch, uh, the Bishop of uh, Diocese in Malawi is here. And we are in fellowship with the Diocese of Malawi in a particular way, supporting them. But during that time, it was the fellowship, it was the encouragement and strength of other churches that came and were cut off from funding by uh, the American and Canadian churches. Uh, and their stand of faith that was so encouraging mm. to us. Yeah, I, <coughs> back in Australia, I do a, a program called thepastorsheart.net. And I've, on, on that program, I've been talking each week with different pastors and, and part of their journey with God and their, their heart relationship with God. Um, uh, I want to talk about your heart, but, but also um, I think myself, when I was sued a decade ago in a very difficult situation and it was a long court battle on a completely unrelated issue and I was found to be vindicated, but um, I, I think... I came to depend on God in a way that I never had before. Um, I, I came to reach out to him in desperateness, to see my vulnerability before him, to see my own... I, I, I examined areas of sin in my life that I hadn't confronted before. I just wondered if you could share some of your journey in that. Yeah. Sure. I'm, I'm not sure uh, whether to overshare on this. It's just you and me. <laughs> Don't worry about them. A couple, couple of friends. A couple of friends. Well, uh, it was very busy and very pressed. We were in the media regularly. Um, there was a constant pressure. And whenever decisions were made internationally or from the diocese, pressure from the diocese, we would communicate as a congregation. We would meet in town halls and try and figure out a way forward. And uh, when, the, when we lost the court case, I had my own, uh, I guess you'd call it a breakdown of sorts, um, I'd been struggling with physical symptoms of stress. And I realized uh, through the next year, I took a year off, I was taken off work for a year, that I had not thought through, I had not ex expressed the anger that I was feeling about it. Everywhere I'd gone, I'd tried to give perspective on the issue and teach. Dealt with the facts. Dealt with the facts and get people on board. But for myself, um, I realized I was deeply angry. And so during that year, I started writing, and it was a great help to me uh, to realize that God, um, God was very, very sad about what was going on. There are all sorts of victims in this context. Now, there are brothers and sisters who are struggling with all forms of sexual attraction who have been given the wrong gospel uh, by what mm. the church in Vancouver did. And... Uh, uh, the loss of properties and those things is not suffering in the same form that perhaps our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and other countries are facing in uh, Syria, certainly. Um, but it was difficult for us. And so uh, through that year, um, it was a time of uh, moving aside 
And I've found that um, God sometimes takes us into the corner and he wants to deal with us more carefully. And learning uh, not just um, about myself, but learning the sufficiency of God's grace. You know, since that time, um, I've had the privilege of preaching through 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians, it's all about weakness. Do you know, when I got sued and I went on stress leave, I came back from stress leave and my first sermon was 2 Corinthians 1 and then I worked through 2 Corinthians. And I'd preached 2 Corinthians twice before but I didn't understand it till that time through. And was, was that your journey too? Absolutely. I, this idea that uh, the death of Jesus as it is at work in us and the life in others, or that his grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness, I just find it impossible to believe day by day. I keep wanting to be strong. But it's, it's actually in the weakness where his power is made perfect. Mm. And um, that's very difficult, I think, for us Australian mm. blokes to get a hold of. For me, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, this, this has happened so that we might not trust in ourselves, but in him who raises the dead. Uh, since 2010 has been my memory verse, has been my favourite verse. It's a wonderful verse, isn't it? And the Apostle says just before that, that uh, he despaired of life itself, yeah. didn't he? You, know, you don't think of the Apostle Paul as getting to that stage. He's very ebullient in, in Philippians. But I think in 2 Corinthians he's saying that the trouble in Asia actually brought him to the point of having some thoughts of taking his own life. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I, I remember um, in the midst of the trauma, um, I, I'd walked from the church to my house, and it's probably a kilometre, and between the church and the house is one of the busiest roads of Sydney, Parramatta Road. And I'd stopped at the traffic lights and I was standing right on the edge of the curve and, I mean, I had been sued. Um, and when you, you, uh, a very similar situation. And I was just feeling so down about it and this bus zoomed past and missed me by that much. And I just thought, you know, it wouldn't have been suicide and it would have solved all my problems. You know? <laughs> Um, but, other but, yeah, 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 that's yeah. right. But but God looked after me. He brought me through it. Yeah. He cared for me. He nurtured me. And um, I mean, I know because we've got some mutual friends. There was a really difficult time for you, and um, it's just lovely to um, to to have you teach the Bible. And and and, and this morning um, we we had three blokes here an hour ago in the New Zealand church, right. and um, who really. Um, I mean, Wally Bean was saying when he was here a decade ago, the issues were academic, you know, whereas um, you're going to be able to, to help lead those guys and give them wisdom and uh, in a way... I mean, as we think about, um, in the middle of the trauma, I, I couldn't even begin to think... I, I mean, I knew it was true intellectually that um, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, but I was just trying to work out how... <laughs> I think, uh, I think for me, in the midst of it, uh, what was so important was I had a team of lay people, the, the leaders of the congregation, and a staff team who were unbelievably supportive, mm. and uh, my family as well. But, uh, and I had bishops calling me. So our, our crisis mm. was a bit different. We had a lot of support. Mm. I had bishops, international bishops, calling every six weeks and mm. praying on the phone for me. Um, so I didn't feel abandoned like, uh, like I, was, I was on my own. 
it was more that I just I tried so hard to find a solution within the within the structures. There wasn't one available, and uh, in the end, it, it it overwhelmed me. I couldn't go forward. Why don't you lead us in prayer? <laughs> thank you. Our oh, Father, we thank you so much for your grace and goodness to us, and for our fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus, who walked the way of the cross for us and rose again. And uh, I pray for everyone who is uh, suffering, uh, who is under persecution, mm. and who doesn't understand that they might trust you. We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would give them that great sense of your presence with them. We ask for the Anglican churches represented here from throughout the world. Uh, we pray for a reordering, uh, a reforming of the church according to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that salvation might ring out so that men and women and boys and girls might come to know the Lord Jesus. And we pray this, Lord, not for the church's sake, but for the sake of the glory of your Son. Amen. Now that's David Short from St. John's in Vancouver. And for him, the disaffiliation was 10 years ago. They lost all their church property, the minister's housing, and really had to start again. And in that decade, well, you've heard there's been struggle, but also great blessing from the Lord Jesus. Now, from Canada to the US and to Chuck Thebo and his church left the Episcopalian church there for similar reasons. And I asked Chuck and particularly his daughter, Rachel, who was a teenager at the time, about her reaction and the impact on their family. We're going to start with you, Chuck, and uh, just tell us the story of, of, of really what happened and leaving the Episcopalian church. Well, we'd seen uh, difficulties arising in the church for a long time. Um, and so we're grappling with what will we do, you know, if a crisis comes. When it came, uh, we had to focus on what would the Lord have us do. That was the bottom line question. Lord, what do you want me to do and us to do as a family? Uh, once we had that conviction, then you just keep your eyes on him, focus and move ahead in that way. We felt convinced that the Lord was calling us to come out away from uh, apostasy is the way we felt it. And uh, it was going to have cost in a number of ways for us. But the feeling was you don't focus on the problem or the challenges, the difficulties. You focus on uh, the Lord and follow through what he calls you to do. And my outlook then was he'll take care of all of us some way or another. And Rachel, you were in your early teens when all this was happening. Um, tell us what you were thinking at, as watching your parents, hearing the, t the conversations around the kitchen table, that kind of thing. Yeah, I was um, in high school when the crisis came. Um, and by crisis, you mean the consecration of the uh, of Gene Robinson? Yes, um, and that I was in, about 15 years old at the time um, when my dad and his church decided to leave the Episcopal Church. I was then in college, um, which was 2008, and um, it was it was a stressful time. It was a time of the unknown, um, but I actually had wanted. Um, our church to leave long before 2008. Um, so I actually was looking for um, the way out. To me, uh, the, the loyalty wasn't to the institution of the church. It was to the Lord and to the gospel. And when that gospel message was being threatened, 
um, I wanted to leave right away. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad is very gracious and understands the authority in the church and the history there, and he wanted to do the right thing and give his bishop time and um, work out what needed to be worked out. Um, So it took some time, but I was excited when they made the decision, um, despite the unknown that was ahead. Mm-hmm. And Chuck, can you just take us through the process? I mean, I, mean, I guess a, a, a blunt question is, did you lose the building? Did you lose your house? What happened on those things? Well, first of all, in relation to the parish, I had been preparing them a long time uh, for what was going on, informing them, and laying the theological groundwork. Um, when it came down to the decision to leave, um, we, as a parish leadership, they decided to come with us. I said, uh, Saints, we're going. Do you want to come with us or not? Uh, making this, the story short and sweet, they decided to come. We felt the Lord calling us to leave the property behind. That was going to be a battle if we wanted to keep it. So we let it go and trusted the Lord would open other doors for us. We currently now have uh, our own very fine ministry center. In fact, we're celebrating our... Um, fifth year of having that sixth year of having that building as a matter of fact so he has blessed us beyond what we uh would have imagined but bottom line is you got to follow what the lord calls you to do and i guess even this week i mean i've been talking um uh, with a couple of people we're going to have um david mccarthy he's a minister in the church of scotland and they voted last week to leave the church of scotland and i mean there's a guy who can look to you for, as a man who's yes. walked the path before, beforehand. Yeah, no, we'd encourage them. The Lord loves them. He's with them. He provides miraculous ways, uh, certainly not ways we expect. And I can testify to that in a number of different ways. It hasn't been according to our expectation, but it's been a great journey. And, uh, you know, my last 10 years of ministry have been the 10 best I've ever had. And, well, Rachel, what, what was it like, though? I mean, in your mid-teens... You'd been living in the vicarage, you know, and then suddenly you're renting a house or whatever, yep. whatever it is. I mean, it, it, it must have been, I mean, yes, following Christ, but also destabilizing. Very much so. Um, in the middle of college, um, and when you're having to fund that mm-hmm. college experience, and at the time, actually, my three brothers were all in college as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there was very much uncertainty and um, it was hard. I remember at my job, my bosses were going through some time of uncertainty too um, and they didn't treat us very well through that, but they didn't know that I was going through a a very similar uncertainty, Um, not knowing if my dad was going to have an income, um, if I'd have a home to go back to or what it would look like. And um, I just, like my dad said, just, focus on what was right and what the Lord was calling us to do. Um, I remember being so proud of my father Mm -hmm. for the stand that he made. And I would write him um, letters and, you know, mail them through snail mail. Um, Just, it might be colorful. It might just be a straight letter of encouragement to him to keep standing firm, Mm -hmm. um, to continue to fight the good fight and um, to do what we all knew was the right thing to do, and that's to stand for the gospel. Mm. So it's worth picking up on that. Um, I was talking with Rachel about this yesterday. Um, uh, one of my issues as a pastor has been uh, talking to 
people, adults, about their teenage children as their teenage children are wandering from the faith. And, and when you actually try to go in as the pastor and solve it, you can't because they've been watching their parents sit, lo- sit loose to commitment for the gospel for a decade and, and then the kids just do actually the same thing that their parents are doing, only they're not as subtle. Do you know? yes. <laughs> and whereas when you actually see your parents make a really costly decision for Christ, then that encourages you to demands my life, my soul, my all. Yes. And that was what I trusted is that if I did what the Lord was, I felt the Lord was calling me to do, he's going to take care of my loved ones uh, in some fashion or another. Yeah. And that was, that was the real issue. Well, and, and more important than having an income to finish college is actually um, seeing your dad trusting Christ yes. and walking with Christ. Yes. Yeah. Now, you, you said a moment ago, Chuck, um, best five years of your ministry. Um, best, ten years. best ten years of your ministry. Just, just, just tell us what's happening now. Well, one of the key things is knowing that I and the group who went with me were taking a costly stand for Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, two is then to see him act in various ways, uh, faithfully to carry us on in our growth in Christ. And then the other is the fellowship in Christ with others who've made that same costly uh, decision. Uh, and so that fellowship has been great and knowing that the people we serve with really love Jesus. Watching my dad go through that, his courage has given me a lot more courage to stand for the Lord. Well, that's Chuck and Rachel Thebo from the United States talking about leaving the Episcopalian Church. Now, for Scotland's David McCarthy, the issues are much more current. It was just a month ago that he and his congregation voted to leave the Church of Scotland. I caught up with David and asked him about the issues that their congregation has been walking through. Well, we've been on a, a journey for a long time, really. Our church, our denomination, the Scottish Episcopal Church, has been on a, a, a journey to try and introduce same-sex marriage. And a little group of us have um, tried to resist that and tried to stand against it. Uh, but over the last two years, our canons have changed. The vote's taken place. Uh, and in the summer of last year, June 8th, 2017, the Episcopal Church took the decision to change the canon of marriage to allow those who want to to do same-sex marriages. We, we so, so really, they've left the faith of Jesus. That's that's what we that's what we are, we believe. We we believe that it's an, it, they're doing something that the Lord can't bless. You know, so the, so the Episcopal Church want to bless something that the Lord won't bless. And uh, and although we won't, I personally won't have to do it. I think they're taking a long view. And the idea would be people like me will not have much of a future. I'll get to when I retire and then who will replace me because it will be expected that people coming in will just accept this new teaching. Mm-hmm. So they're playing a long game. And I think some of us realise that we, we, need to, we need to step away from that. So a group of us have been looking at how we might disaffiliate from the Scottish Episcopal Church. The first congregation to manage this was in uh, the Isle of Harris, which is way out in the Western Isles of Scotland, about as remote as you can get. And they, they made the decision to leave and to leave their building, which they, they built with their own, literally with their own hands, all the money that they had in the bank. And uh, they've left that building behind and are now meeting in a, 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 in a little village of Tarbot on, uh, on Harris. Uh, but that's a new start for them. So other congregations are looking at how we might do this. The difficulty in Scotland, as it is in a large part, of the United Kingdom is that most congregations don't own their properties. The properties are owned by the central church. 
Uh, and that makes it difficult for people to offer resistance and to leave. You have to make a brave decision to walk away. If you're the rector or the senior minister, you have to walk away from your home and you have to walk away from your, your income, your stipend potentially if you're paid. Some churches are not like that. The congregation owns the property and the congregation I serve, in fact the two congregations I serve in Scotland have both been in that situation. However, that doesn't mean that it's still easy to walk away. It's possible that the diocese or the province might fight it, but we've learned that uh, the diocese is prepared to let this go because of the unique situation mm. and the congregation owning the property. Now, you wrote a very interesting post in a Facebook group that you and I are both in the other day about some of the things that you've learnt as a minister going through this difficult journey. And I just wonder if you could share some of those reflections. I think I, there was a lot of them. I think mm. there were 10, almost 11, but I'll give you just a few of them. I mean, one is not to... If you are a senior minister... Don't assume that everyone is with you, that everyone uh, reads the Bible in the same way as you do, that everyone is orthodox in their thinking. There's a lot of pressure on people now. You know, if you've got family or friends who are struggling with sexual identity or sexuality in general, it's very difficult to, um, to go against them. You know, it will be said you're not being loving if you say, well, I love you, but I don't agree with you. Uh, and that puts a lot of pressure on people. And we found that we found some people not willing to follow the lead. I'd be very blessed in that I've had a great vestry and a group of trustees who've remained faithful and united. And the wonderful thing for me, this is another lesson, is for people like me to lean into the lay people that the Lord puts around you. You know, so that because the, what people love to do is make the rector the big target. You know, and to to make the rector. Um, the big bad person, the big bad guy and I, I've had a glorious group of people who've been willing to take some of that pressure and it's been a real, a real help to me. I think the other thing that's, that we've learned is that um, some people will speak badly of you to your face and some people will speak well of you to your face but behind your back they may not be quite as supportive as, as they appear to be and then there's also the problem, for me the pain of sometimes feeling that, that other colleagues are not willing to stand with you in the same way uh, they're not willing to stand up publicly and offer resistance and sometimes not willing to, to really um, publicly say that we're doing the right thing. And, I, and that's, that, that's a little bit painful at times as well. How's the journey um, been helped by the GAFCON movement? I think it's been an amazing thing really to have. Um, I've been bishoped more in the last three years, four years than the previous 25 years of ministry. So just, just explain this verb, using the term bishop as a <laughs> verb. <laughs> well, do you know, if, bishop's job, if a bishop's job is to keep the faith once delivered to all the saints, to keep us on the right track... That's what you'd hope. Okay. I've seen more of that in action, but without anyone kind of uh, putting pressure on me, or, but just seeing that wonderfully in action, trusting a group of bishops from around the world... Oh, so, oh, sorry, you're not talking about your local bishop. No, you're, no, 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 no. You're, you're talking about no, some I, of I, these guys. Yeah. I haven't seen very much of that um, from local bishops. Um, but, but, but some of these GAFCON guys but have been super guys, supportive. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the GAFCON primates themselves, you know, responded to our request uh, to uh, consecrate a bishop for, for essentially yeah, Scotland. Yeah, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Scotland. That, you got Andy Lyons. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was that was that was a really important thing. They really heard us, listened to us, and responded to it. Well, that's David McCarthy from Scotland, and I also caught up with Dave Clancy from Christchurch in New Zealand, and he's in the process of leading his congregation 
through the turbulent waters of their general synod decision to go ahead with the blessing of same-sex marriage. And Dave Clancy has told me that the New Zealand general synod decision feels like a betrayal and it's been really hard and really sad. About uh, six or seven weeks ago, the General Synod voted to permit the blessing of civil marriages and civil unions, and in New Zealand, uh, people of the same gender can be married. So it was a way of introducing same-sex blessings into the Anglican Church. They also permitted the teaching or uh, that such blessings are uh, consistent with Holy Scripture and the doctrines of the Church. Uh, they've done really well in trying to make a big place for people who disagree to stand. They've offered some protections and additional Episcopal support for people who disagree. Uh, but at the end of the day, they, in my opinion, have circumvented the formularies and have moved away from the gospel as we have received it in the church. I mean, you've got to say God meant something when he caused his inspired word to be written, and you really are doing the most incredible exegetical hijinks to try and twist the scriptures to say anything other than that. Um, now, uh, the impact on the church and the Bible men and women in the New Zealand church, in the Anglican denomination, uh, it's caused a lot of anguish. Um, and I'm imagining that all sorts of churches in, across New Zealand uh, are having church meetings to decide what to do, to think through these issues. Um, now, what what have been what's the way you've approached it at uh, St Saviour's and St Nicholas's in Christchurch? Yeah, when we when we first heard about it happening, I mean, we knew it was coming for years. We knew it was coming, but it just burst into tears. Uh, there's a profound sadness uh, at what happened because of the walking away from the faithfulness to Christ, the walking away from the gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's right. And just we've worked so hard to try and call the church to remain faithful to who we are and what God has entrusted to us, and it felt felt like a betrayal and it was just really really hard and really sad we then embarked on a process with the vestry of the pcc uh to pray consult uh carefully decide and as a uh, as a vestry we felt that we couldn't sign up we have to sign to submit to the authority of general synod in new zealand and vestry members and clergy and and we felt we couldn't do that we also felt that uh the majority of the church were um uh, felt it was wrong to be part of a congregation. It wasn't right to remain affiliated with a denomination that had moved in this direction. We felt we'd been left behind. We didn't want to move. We wanted, didn't want to change. Well, they've moved. You yeah, haven't. That, yeah. That's, that's right. So, What's the decision of your church then? Uh, we've decided that because of what General Synod has done, we can no longer remain affiliated with the province. Uh, we've decided, therefore, to disaffiliate, to uh, unfortunately step apart. Uh, we're going to do that uh, as graciously and godly and in a godly way as possible. We want to do that working with diocesan structures and with people who choose to remain in our parish, the few who will, uh, and to work with other like-minded brothers and sisters in establishing a, a, a new expression of Anglicanism in these islands, which is really the old expression of Anglicanism in our islands. Which That's Dave Clancy of Christchurch in New Zealand, and this has been The Pastor's Heart this week. Thanks for being with us, and we'll look forward to catching up with you in a week's time right here. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.